Hi folks, Guy Adami here. A few weeks ago, I spoke with Michael Saylor from MicroStrategies through the Context 365 Lunch Series about crypto adoption, monetary policy, and financial markets more broadly. I thought our on-the-tape audience would love to hear the conversation we had. You'll hear me intro him more formally once it gets underway. Look for another crypto-related conversation from us later this week with Raul Paul and hit subscribe so you don't miss it. On to our conversation. Mr. Seller is a technologist, entrepreneur, business executive, philanthropist, and best-selling author. He currently serves as the chairman of the board of directors and CEO of MicroStrategy. Since co-founding the company at age of 24, Mr. Seller has built MicroStrategy into a global leader in business intelligence, mobile software, and cloud-based services. In 2012, he authored The Mobile Wave, How Mobile Intelligence Will Change Everything, which earned a spot on the New York Times bestsellers list. Mr. Seller attended the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, to me, receiving an SB in aeronautics and astronautics and an SB in science, technology, and society. He's a total stud. I'm considering him to be, you know, one of my new friends. Michael, welcome to this, and thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me, Guy. Happy no, to be it's, here. no, it's great. And listen, you know, there's so many things to talk about, but one of the first things I obviously want to talk about, you know, is this privacy activists and free market libertarians have been around for a long time. There have been many, many technologies prior to the Bitcoin technology, yet here we are today. Um, is this the last iteration um, or is there more to come? I mean, is this going to continue to evolve? Yeah, I, I think that Bitcoin isn't the first crypto asset network. People try to do it with Hashcash and eGold and a bunch of other techniques. It's the first one that worked. And it's the first one to make it to 100 billion in market cap and then to make it to 200 and then 500 and then a trillion. I think at this point, it has emerged as the global open source monetary protocol and at a trillion dollars of monetary energy in it, that means it's the fastest digital network to a trillion dollars in value in the history of the world. I, I don't really think that there's uh, any chance that a trillion dollar digital network gets displaced at this point. I think it's going to be around, if not for 100 years, uh, in, in some way, shape or form, this protocol is going to go on for many, many generations and, and be, because... It's the first example of a, of a successful technology that could serve as a digital monetary network. No question. And, and you know, you've come to this realization, obviously, you know, you, you've been in the news for the last six months, but I think you really wrapped your head around this and, and correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, this is something I think you might have not struggled with, but maybe questioned for a while, but I think you fully embraced it probably February of 2020, if my math is right. Is, is that correct? March. You know, March. I, I, beware the Ides of March. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded of that. I, I think that, um, that, you know, modern portfolio theory got broken in March of 2020. And the conventional thinking before March was 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and, uh, and if you're a corporate treasury, you, you hold your money in, uh, in short dated treasury instruments, earning two, three, 4% yield. And then the cost of capital is like 5% or 6%. Uh, 
All that got upended in March. The cost of capital became about 24%. The treasury yields went to zero. Bonds went to infinity, right? You know, you had 50 yeah. basis points in the 10 year and you, you could have, you know, you had like 100 basis points in the 30 year, sky high, price discovery disappeared. And now all of a sudden, all of my conventional views of the world get shattered. And, mm -hmm. and I have simultaneously a problem, which I, as I'm staring at hundreds of millions of dollars of cash, which is, which is not going to beat the 24% cost of capital. And so I just got to extrapolate out how many years will we run with a 15, 20, 25% cost of capital. And if I think it's more than six months, I got to do something. And so right. March was a wake up call. I got to do something. Well, it's interesting. And this leads me to one of the first questions we have from our audience, one of our sponsors. And I've heard you answer this question, but I'm sure a lot of people haven't. Uh, what was the board's initial reaction when you came to them with this idea? Obviously, it's something you need to discuss. I've heard you say a number of times you gave all your board members homework, basically. So I'm interested in some of those conversations. I think the first reaction, yeah, but by the way, if I brought this idea to the board in February, they would have been like, you're out of your mind. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I wouldn't have brought it to the board in February. If you had brought it to me, guy, in February, I would have said, you're out of your mind. What is this Bitcoin thing? I don't get it. But, uh, you know, after the collective experiences we had in March, April and May, by the time you get to May, everybody knows there's a problem. Everybody knows the cost of capital is shooting through the roof. The indication is the K-shaped recovery that we right. see. And, and so now everybody's open minded to the problem. They're like, OK, well, what is this Bitcoin thing? So. I first had to give them homework. Here's three hours worth of videos to watch. Here's 10 documents to read. Then I had to go through an educational exercise and meet with each of them individually. Then we met as a group. Then we discussed. Then we agreed we had a problem. We agreed it might be a solution. And we agreed that it was still somewhat of a, of a dangerous place to go. So ultimately, uh, after, we, after we got educated and we came to consensus, our conclusion is, well, let's just split the difference. Let's basically buy 250 million worth of Bitcoin and let's buy 250 million worth of our own stock back. But let's not buy our stock back immediately or buy it back over a year. Let's basically buy a $250 million insurance policy. We're going to do a $250 million Dutch tender auction over 20 days contemporaneous with the Bitcoin purchase so that we could communicate with complete transparency and with a lot of advance notice to all of our shareholders that we were about to embark on a new path. And they obviously embrace that. And, and that's the one end of the spectrum. And I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think as we sit here today, I think MicroStrategy now has 91,064 or so Bitcoins at an average price of just north of 24,000. So that's the one end that I want to talk about. But the other end of the spectrum is for the family offices, for our, our viewers here, how do you start? Like, how did you start? I mean, there was obviously a path to get you to that March date. How did you start? Okay, well, you know, um, the clock went off in March. We spent about three months of education and consensus building and, you know, and, and uh, the company ended up... Uh, making these announcements late July and acting in August, just in terms of time. Now, um, if you're, 
you know, you can learn anything on the internet, by the way, how you start, you start going to YouTube and mm -hmm. you start, you start looking at videos. If you want a curated set of videos, go to hope.com because I posted a curated set of Bitcoin resources, uh, third party videos, analysis, other companies' views, shareholder letters, my own views, etc. So I think you got to do your homework. You, you can't really get into this until you understand the underlying crypto theory. Uh, what is the what's the theory of a crypto asset network, the underlying macroeconomics, the technical drivers and then everything else. People that uh, that don't understand it, you know, at best, they say it's an un uncorrelated speculative asset. But once you understand it, you realize it's the solution to your problem. And it takes uh, 12 hours for the for a person from going from cold to mm -hmm. kind of warm if they have an open mind and if they have the commitment to do so. It's interesting you say that. So, and, and, I, and I have a view on this, not that mine matters, but should price factor into this at all? I, when you have not a five minute time frame like so many of us do, but when you have a five year, 10 year outlook, should you even consider what the price is before we came on? We were sort of having a conversation about you know the price of Bitcoin, but should I even... Uh, come into the, the conversation or, or should that change your way of thinking? I think my, my view here is you ought to look out 10 years. You ought to look at, at uh, motions or movement in one year increments. So your term is one to 10 years. And, and the focus ought to be on trillion dollar asset classes, mm -hmm. not smaller things. So for example, if you if you look at uh, the 10-year compound annual growth rate of Bitcoin, it's 201% on average every year for 10 years. If you look at the, and there's a trillion dollars in it now. If you look at gold, there's 10 trillion in gold. The compounded annual growth rate for 10 years is 1.88%. If you look at uh, S&P 500 index, um, well, there's about uh, $32 trillion of assets there. The compounded annual growth rate in 10 years starting today, 11.6%. Big tech, uh, NASDAQ, that's 18 trillion. You got 17% compounded annual growth. And if you look at the long bond, like 20 to 30 year dated treasuries, you would have got 4% in them over 10 years. So if you look at that and you step back, you say, okay, well, I get the trend. I don't really think it makes sense to actually make a macroeconomic or portfolio move unless you're unless you're looking out. Short term is four years. Long term mm -hmm. is 10 years. If you're going to look at one day, one hour, one week, one month, you know, you can break you can look at 100,000 assets every single day and you can generate millions of times as much information. It's all noise. It's like I take a microscope and I like zoom into your forehead. And if I get close enough, I'll find a blemish. I mean, it's no like doubt. I'm, I'm exercise. I'm trying to find something to give me anxiety. I will find it if I just look close enough, frequently enough. Wasn't well, the whole system set up right now? Not your system, but so, you know, in terms of what I do almost on a daily basis. And just if you look at Twitter and you look at the news cycle, isn't the entire thing set up to create the anxiety that you just brought up? It's entertainment. Right. We, we have we have this challenge. There are people that make their living providing information. There's networks like Twitter that keep you with a dopamine hit. There are analysts and they analyze soybeans versus corn versus futures versus 
swaps, derivatives, this, that, and the other thing. And they have to have something to talk about every day, every week, every month. We publish a newsletter. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that encourages people to generate uh, noise, but it's not signal. Here's signal. If you go look at the blue dollar rate, which is the black market rate of the dollar versus the Argentine peso from 2003 to 2021, it's gone from three, three pesos to the dollar to 150 pesos to the dollar. And it's just sli- the, the dollar is strengthening against the peso every year. That's the trend. If you look at all the currencies, for fun, I look at the last 10 years of every mm-hmm. currency in the world. The bottom line is a lot of them are collapsing. Most of them are weakening. A few are trading sideways. And then a bunch are are capital controlled, totally collapsing, but no one wants to talk about it. That's the story. Now, if I come back to you and I say, Guy, you live in Argentina, it's 2003. I think the currency is going to keep weakening. You know, what should you do? And the answer is, it doesn't matter what you do. You could analyze every company in Argentina and every bond in Argentina and every piece of real estate in Argentina and every swap and every derivative, this and that transaction. Nothing matters. The only strategy that makes sense is you convert all your pesos to dollars. You forward finance your cash flows to a loan in dollars. You you finance all your fixed assets into dollars. You sell equity, which you convert into dollars. And you put the dollars into a bank and you get it out of the country. And if you do that, you'll be fine. And if you don't do that, a million other strategies all don't work because fundamentally, all of your investments are correlated to a currency which is losing 15% of its economic value every year. And that dwarfs the execution of the CEO. It dwarfs any other strategy that a money manager could apply. And therefore, nothing that happened in Argentina for 15 years matters other than convert your money or convert your investment to a strong asset and put it outside the reach of a government that would forcibly convert it back into pesos and devalue it. Well, that's interesting you say that because it leads me to, you know, I I love reading you on Twitter, watching you on Twitter, whatever the terminology is. But you have some great sort of uh, anecdotal things. And one of the things I read recently, stocks valued on expected cash flows only hold value if those cash flows grow faster than the rate of monetary expansion. And you just see what's going on here in the United States. Um, I mean, I think that that quote right there, I think, really sort of centered your line of thinking as to how micro strategies should move forward. And oh, by the way, many other companies I want to talk about, but, you know, can you speak to that quote, monetary expansion, there seems to be no end in sight. I think the the most pernicious, uh, most pernicious mental model that people have is the idea that inflation equals CPI and Mm -hmm. and that, that either that that number matters. And the number that really matters is cost of capital, which is the same as the rate of monetary expansion, which is closer to the broad money supply or M2 money expansion, or another surrogate could be the S&P 500 index or the average rate at which a market basket of every stock moves. When you look at those numbers, you get an inflation rate in asset inflation, which is 24 to 35%. 
Now, what, now, if you have an inflation rate of 0%, a company that's generating cash flow for the next decade can be discounted back and has value. When the inflation rate or the cost of capital goes to 8%, maybe it can have value as long as you leverage it up. But when the cost of capital gets to 24%, your, you know, your utility has to grow its cash flows 24% because the value of cash in a decade is nothing because it won't buy anything. And so what does that mean? The, the, the problem is the currency is becoming toxic to hold when the cost of capital goes to 24%. And, and what I'm getting at with that quote is value stocks won't hold value. They're not a store of value in, in a situation where the money supply is expanding 15% or 20%. Value stocks only work in a very in a very low uh, cost of capital environment, and so right now people can't hold value in bonds because bonds are going to yield a two percent coupon against a twenty percent cost of capital. They can't hold value in gold because capital is running away from it. I mean, gold is a disaster. It's like up two percent a year for a decade. They can't hold money in value stocks because the value stocks can't grow faster than a 20% or a 15% hurdle rate. By definition, they're all low growth. So that means that everybody gets stampeded into super high growth stocks like uh, Tesla or meme stocks or SPACs that are speculative because fundamentally the monetary policy is dictating what investable assets can hold value five years out or 10 years out. Once you understand that the inflation rate that matters to you is asset inflation, mm -hmm. not CPI, it completely changes your view toward portfolio theory and how you discount every single asset and what, and what you do with your money and your time. There's no question about. It. I mean, we're on the same page with this one. You know, to the extent that you ever watch Fast Money or read the things that I, I am no fan of central banks, specifically our Federal Reserve. I'm not here to rail against them, but I want to use another Michael Saylor uh, uh, tweet. In finance, everything that is agreeable is unsound, and everything that is sound <coughs> is disagreeable. And it's so funny. I I saw that recently, just sort of doing my homework. And that's exactly right. I mean, there seems to be this belief that there's some sound policies coming out of central banks, specifically our Federal Reserve. And I think it's anything but. Uh, I, I'm, I'm certain that when you look at what's going on globally, central banks and their policies, you have to be saying to yourself, in a world where everybody's looking to devalue their currency, nobody wins except exactly what you've done over the last year. Is there some accuracy in that statement for me? Yeah, there is. I mean, I think fundamentally, in a, in a sound money environment, um, then, then um, you have a very complicated job picking assets because a piece of commercial real estate, if you have zero monetary inflation, maybe you want to own real estate, maybe you want to own a value stock, maybe you want to take the risk on a high growth stock, maybe you want to own a bond, maybe you want to try some venture capital, maybe. But as the money, when the money supply or the monetary inflation rate got to 8%, you kind of had to be leveraged if you're a value stock. You couldn't be unleveraged. And, you, and, and otherwise, you buy companies that are growing 20%, like Amazon and Apple, and it becomes much less choice. 
in the world where the where the cost of capital doubles again or triples, price discovery disappears for more and more asset classes. So perversely, it actually makes the portfolio allocation decision simpler. It's like, mm-hmm. I know I can't buy negative yielding sovereign debt. Um, junk bond indexes are at four to five percent, and the risk of the of the bond failing is four percent. So I'm looking at zero yield and on junk debt, no upside, uh, only downside. I can't sit in cash. Um, and so I can't sit in long dated, long, long commercial real estate because they all have a CPI cap in the lease renewal provision. I know they all do. So you're buying a long bond. So now I go off to stocks and, and again, the value stocks that unless someone has leveraged them up. And the problem is they all got levered over the past decade. And so the only way uh, to actually get a decent yield is super high leverage on low growth or super risky high growth. And, uh, and that's what drives everybody into these new ideas. That's actually fueling the crypto fire. People are moving, they're moving to evaluate um, new ideas. The SPACs wouldn't exist without the fact that people have to, you have to mm-hmm. buy optionality. Like I'd rather buy something with optionality. You could look at a SPAC and you could say, well, SPACs in a way have exploded in the same way that a convertible bond looks more interesting than a junk bond or a corporate bond. Cause at least with a convertible bond, I have an equity linkage to it. I have to have equity linkage or optionality with risk, with uncertainty in all of these things for them to make sense. And I, I, I think the monetary policy drives the capital into those new asset classes. It's interesting. So, you know, again, off your Twitter, but I've actually, I, I knew this quote prior from Schopenhauer, um, all truth passed through three stages. First, it's ridiculed. Second, it's violently opposed. And third, it's accepted as self-evident. So I don't think we're at the self-evident part in terms of crypto and Bitcoin, but we're probably somewhere between one and two. Are we in this sort of uh, three <clears throat> stages of truth? You know, um, when uh, Bitcoin was, Bitcoin is a crypto asset network. Basically, the idea is let's form a bank in cyberspace with 21 million units let's all buy the units and let's make it impossible for a CEO or a company or a government to dilute the number of units. So let's put it outside of the control of humanity. So Bitcoin is that bank in cyberspace. The value of a Bitcoin is kind of equal to the book value of of the money invested in the network, adjusted up for inflation, divided by 21 million. That's the way to think about Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Well, um, when it was a billion, it was an experiment. When it's 50 billion, it was scary as heck. We didn't know if it was going to be banned, copied, cloned or whatever. When it got to 200 billion in March of last year, it became pretty clear that it wasn't going away. And that's the point at which I got involved because I said to myself, I never seen a $200 billion digital network that ever got displaced. Like once you get to that point, you've got escape velocity. Today, Bitcoin is a trillion dollar bank in cyberspace, and it's got more than 100 million depositors. It's got thousands and thousands of companies plugged into it. It is the fastest digital network to grow to a trillion dollars in market value in the history of the world. It took, uh, it took Amazon 24 years, Google 22 years, Apple 42 years, Microsoft 44 years, Bitcoin 
12 years. Okay, so Bitcoin is a monetary network. Facebook is a social network. It's not getting displaced. When a trillion dollars worth of capital adopts that as their monetary network, it is clearly past that first stage of ridicule craziness. It's now gotten to the point where it's providing a role as as a store of value in a world that probably needs to store 100 to 200 trillion dollars of value. So in my mind, there's, there's no doubt the next stop is it flips gold because gold is 10 trillion of dead money that we just wanted to park in a vault as a store of value and Bitcoin's better than that. And it's, it's clearly, it's being uh, promoted in the past few weeks Look, Kathy Wood just said, you know, the old 60-40 portfolio doesn't make sense. How about 60% equity, 20% bonds, 20% Bitcoin? Whoa, that just happened a week ago. You know, now you have Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, Citigroup, you know, all talking about Bitcoin in the past few weeks. It's clearly moving. I, I believe it's moving into the year one of institutional mainstream adoption, like February 8th, when Tesla came out and announced they bought one and a half billion dollars of Bitcoin. That was the starting of the gun of mainstream. March, March of last year was the first year zero, zero year. Like if you're crazy and you want to take a risk, you buy Bitcoin. And you had one year to be very early. This is year one of this is a reasonable solution. You just saw the CEO of New York Life join the board of NIDIG. They have $700 billion. He's the sitting CEO currently of New York Life. $700 billion of assets under management. The insurance industry has $7 trillion on their balance sheet. NIDIG announced that insurance companies have a billion dollars of Bitcoin exposure. Three months ago, crickets. Okay, so what happens over the next 36 months? Well, th this is really the evolution. But mm -hmm. until Bitcoin gets to 20, 30 billion, I don't think we're getting into the, the more mature area of the curve. I think it's going to sprint to the $20 trillion level because that would just be 2x gold. So this is a tough question to answer, and it's from the audience. I'm, I'm going to rephrase it a little bit. Um, should a small company in, put its cash towards Bitcoin, or should they invest and focus on technical resources on building technology on blockchain technology? So should, you know, should it be a straight Bitcoin play, or should it sort of be a, a, a derivative of Bitcoin? <laughs> Look, I think I think it's a no-brainer for any company to put half your treasury into Bitcoin. I joke tongue in cheek. You only have you don't have to put all your cash into Bitcoin. Only the money you want to keep. Like, <laughs> like uh, that's what I think. I think half, converting your treasury to Bitcoin is a no-brainer because Bitcoin is appreciating at two hundred percent a year on average for a decade. It's up six hundred percent this year. And, uh, and the money that you're holding is losing 15% of its purchasing power or more a year. So that's a no-brainer. If you buy 100 million of Bitcoin, you just purchased a $100 million dominant digital monetary network growing 200% a year. That's what you just did. And you bought the monopoly, the network that's 100 times bigger than the next like kind network. Whereas if you go into the... I think that, so your first strategy is you put your balance sheet into Bitcoin as much as you dare, right? 
And your second strategy is you try to tie your P&L, your products and your services into Bitcoin. Look, if you're on television, talk about Bitcoin, put it on the screen. If you're an analyst, analyze Bitcoin versus gold and every other asset class. If, you're, if you have a, a mutual fund company, you should offer mutual funds based on Bitcoin. If you're an insurance company, you should offer Bitcoin-backed life insurance. Mm -hmm. If you're a mobile payment company like Square or PayPal, you should build Bitcoin into your mobile payments. But I would not recommend that anybody take, uh, take liquid capital and go into business competing against Square or PayPal. I would not recommend that you go into business competing against Fidelity or PIMCO. I would not recommend you compete against CNBC. You should use your, your, your strategic assets that you have accumulated over 30 years and align them to the new reality of Bitcoin. But you should, if you have liquid capital, you know, you got $10 million in capital, just buy the Bitcoin because it's the most competitive ecosystem ever. There's a, you know, when I talk to entrepreneurs that are investing in Bitcoin, you know, they're like, I just raised $50 million and I'm going to do Bitcoin, whatever, something hard wallet or something. I said, well, have you invested half of that in Bitcoin? <clears throat> they're like, well, wait a minute. I need to keep that in U.S. dollars in order to compete. I'm like, you're crazy. You know, the U.S. dollar is losing its value. There is a future where your company fails and Bitcoin succeeds. Yeah. In fact, it's 99% likely that any company competing in a competitive market fails but the market succeeds. So if you want to de-risk your company, you know, if, I would say invest your treasury in Bitcoin and you'll succeed whether or not you become the world's greatest mobile payment network on Bitcoin or the world's greatest Bitcoin miner. In fact, well, I tell the miners, I said, buy Bitcoin before you mine Bitcoin. And that's what Marathon did. And they mm -hmm. made they made $150 million off of the Bitcoin they bought before they mined the first $150 million in Bitcoin. And so it's a smart idea to put your balance sheet into Bitcoin before your P&L into Bitcoin. Well, well, it's interesting because you, it required you specifically to look at portfolios, your company differently. And then, you know, I'm, I'm sure you looked at your balance <coughs> sheet of micro strategies for years as an asset. And then you said, wait a second, I'm converting a balance sheet that was a liability into an asset. And that requires, you have to rewire your brain a little bit. Now I ask you this, you know, we talk about Apple almost on a daily basis and four times a year when they report earnings, one of the first things we'll say is, oh, and by the way, they have, you know, $275 billion worth of cash on their balance sheet. And you probably hear that and wince. And I'm not asking if you've had a conversation, but when you see a balance sheet like that, by definition, in Michael Saylor's world, that's a huge liability. Yeah, yeah. First of all, you got $100 billion on your balance sheet. Your cost of capital this year, depending on whether you use the M2 money supply or the S&P, is between 25 and 35%, which means that you burn $25 billion in shareholder value just to stare at it. Right. That's wait for four years. You burn one hundred billion dollars of shareholder value to stare at it. So cash laden balance sheets are a liability in an environment where the money supply is expanding at 15, 20, 25 percent. You have to plug in what you expect that cost of capital be. But clearly they're a liability. So uh, let me give you a, a model to think of. 
my company had 500 million in, in revenue. We generated 75 million in cash flow, and we had 500 million in cash on our balance sheet. And that 500 million in treasury was yielding effectively zero. Well, if, if the money supply, the cost of capital is zero, you can tread water. When mm -hmm. the money supply went to, when, when the cost of capital got to be 20%, uh, and I saw this in June, I said, well, if I work hard and I do 100,000 things right for a year, I'm going to generate 75 million in cash flow, but I'm going to burn 100 million in, in shareholder value. And so, in essence, all of the work of everybody in the company is irrelevant because of the monetary wind blowing in my face. So it's, it's kind of like you're in a rowboat and you're rowing uh, five miles an hour against a five mile or two mile wind and you're rowing across the Atlantic. The wind starts blowing 20 miles an hour in your face. You're getting blown back 15 miles an hour. You're never going to cross the Atlantic. You're going to starve to death. So what do you do? Well, you take your 500 million in capital and you convert it into a $500 million Bitcoin sale. Okay. And then you turn your boat around and you sail with the wind, not against the wind. And now if you have $500 million of Bitcoin against a 20% cost of capital, you know, you're going to get generate a hundred million dollars in investment income plus 75 million in operating income or cash flow. And so you just doubled the value accretion of the company. Well, when uh, we got to the point where that crypto sale became a billion dollar sale, and we knew we were going to generate a $200 million investment income by doing nothing, just getting blown with the wind. And, that, and now you're a company that's going to generate $250 million of accretion a year against $500 million in revenue. What happened next? We borrowed $650 million. We forward financed the next $650 million worth of cash flow, bought Bitcoin, doubled it, and we ended up with a $3 billion crypto sale. And if that gets blown at 20%, you know, th then you're looking at $600 million in investment income. And what do you do next? Well, we got blown a bit further. We raised another billion at 0% interest. We're, we're basically borrowing money at 0% interest, a billion dollars for six years. And we're buying an asset, which is appreciating in value 200% a year. The arbitrage is 200%. You're, yeah, it's pretty obvious. So what happens next? Well, Bitcoin is going up because it's the strongest asset out of $400 trillion of weaker assets that are all bleeding 15% of their monetary energy a year. We now have, and Guy, I can't make this up. This is like unbelievable. Last year, we had $500 million as a liability yielding zero, and it was hopeless. It was mm -hmm. literally hopeless. Nothing we could do is going to actually create shareholder value. The stock traded down to 90 bucks a share. It was maybe trading at 100. We, we were being valued at one times revenue plus cash. That was the situation. Today, we have more than $5 billion in assets in Bitcoin, $5 billion. And if, if uh, the money supply gets expanded by 20% or by 15%, you're looking at generating a billion dollars of investment return a year, just waiting. And right. so you, you got to say, instead of, you got to get out of your rowboat where you, this is Main Street versus Wall Street, K-shaped recovery. 
on Main Street is 2,000 people doing 100,000 things perfectly, working as hard as they can against a monetary wind blowing in their face, against tech monopolies, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, you know, with all their hands tied behind their back. That's Main Street. Wall Street is I have $5 billion. And if, and if uh, the Fed continues with their loose money policy, then we'll make a billion dollars and we'll do it with one quarter mm -hmm. of a person. And so what the bottom line is, if you're a company, you have to have a balance sheet with high quality assets that are going to appreciate at a, at a value rate faster than the rate of monetary expansion. Otherwise, you're simply being beat to death by the monetary policy. It's interesting, yet, you know, very few analysts will, will talk about Apple, and I don't want to go down the Apple rabbit hole, but just only because of the, the sheer number of, you know, dollars on their balance sheet, and they'll say that's an asset, yet, you know, if, if you were to look at it in 2021 terminology in your world, Michael Saylor's world, it's a huge liability that's only going to continue to sort of decay regardless of what they do, unless they go down this path, and which leads me to, you know, your global conference that you just had, where I think, I mean, I don't know what the term is, broke the internet, but I think things sort of went down. You had so many people joining uh, the conference. What type of questions did you feel like? You know, I'm sure people asked, how long will it take us to embrace this strategy to get, you know, our board of directors around it? Were those the types of questions you got from some of these CEOs that attended the conference? You know, we, we were getting those questions a lot before the conference, and we were inspired to do the conference because we were getting 20, 30, 40 phone calls from people that wanted to know how to do it. So <clears throat> we thought in the age of the Internet, you know, you can't have one meeting an hour for the rest of your life. It, the stuff just goes too slow. So we had the conference and we decided to open source our legal analysis, our due diligence, our corporate governance documents. We put them in the public domain. We had our tax advisor, Deloitte, work on this. They put a white paper in the public domain. We hosted a conference. I thought we'd have 2,000 people show up. Uh, we had 10,000 show up. They broke our video server. People started streaming it on YouTube. Eventually, uh, the sessions went to 750,000 people on YouTube. And thousands, of, I think 8,000 companies showed up just the day of, and, and it's been uh, exploding there. The questions are, are basic, right? How do we move through the due diligence? What about the accounting? What about the legal? And I think that, um, that people are inspired, uh, and, and what we've done made it possible to shrink that, uh, that adoption cycle from three months, maybe down to three weeks, which was our idea. Um, what I would say in general, Guy, is, is the most important takeaway for a corporation is <clears throat> if, um, if the cost of capital is 8% or 6% and you can get 4% on conventional treasury strategies, then you can go ahead and pursue that. But conventional treasury strategy is broken. The mm -hmm. cost of capital is 20% or more. Conventional treasuries yield zero. Um, you got to find a different strategy Securities are a bit problematic for a corporation because of the 40 Securities Act. And, you know, do I want to hold more than 40% of my balance sheet in securities? Uh, it's tricky, but, but one solution is I buy the S&P or I buy NASDAQ that, and, and maybe. The other solution is I buy property and the highest quality property is Bitcoin. 
So the big idea is convert your balance sheet from a liability into an asset and either do it to avoid destroying all the shareholder value in your cash and in your treasury or do it because the alternative guy is actually more horrifying. The alternative is, is um, maybe I'm growing my company 8% a year, but I know I got to grow it 16% a year to get respect from Wall Street. Right. So I, I borrowed billions of dollars and I buy half my stock back. Yep. And so I take on billions of dollars of debt. I leverage up. I get my cash flow per share to grow 16% a year instead of 8%. And then I get some respect from Wall Street. I'm now $2 billion closer to insolvency. And what I'm doing is I'm borrowing large sums of money to buy a business that's growing 6% a year. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, eliminating all the equity. The opposite idea, and by the way, this is kind of what Apple is doing. I mean, Apple's a great business. It's, a, it's literally a, mono, a digital tech monopoly. So, you, you know, that's... It's not a scary idea for Apple, but there are plenty of businesses that are not digital tech monopolies that can't issue a product to a billion people over the weekend for a nickel. Mm -hmm. And when those companies pursue that, they're basically giving up all their equity and they're taking on huge leverage and they become like a Toys R Us situation where they're driven toward insolvency because they, they can't compete. So there's a different strategy, right? By the way, this is the road less travel. We had a choice. We could give back $500 million to the shareholders and we would have basically twice as much micro strategy and we could try to grow at 5% a year, you know? And everybody's like, if you tell everybody you're going to grow a company 5% a year, they roll their eyes and, and they think, and their, their message to every CEO is you got to take on more risk. You got to do something. You got to do an acquisition. Your right. CEOs are driven into massively leveraged positions or dilutive acquisitions in order to please Wall Street. And and Wall Street's not the evil enemy here. The problem is the cost of capital is twenty percent or fifteen percent. So you're either going to pursue a strategy of dilutive acquisitions or a strategy of excessive leverage or your third strategy is Apple could borrow $25 billion at 1% or 3% interest buy Bitcoin that yields 200% interest. And it's the, what, what would you say to Tim Cook? You would say, Tim, if you can buy a $100 billion company that's growing 100% a year and it's profitable, you should do that. Right. What is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is 100 billion, you know. You can buy $100 billion worth of Bitcoin or, or 10 or 20 or 30 billion worth of Bitcoin. It's growing 600% this year, but 200% a year on average. So my message to any company, whether it's Microsoft or Amazon or Apple or Tesla, is <clears throat> why don't you take the asset that you can get a lot of? You can go borrow $20 billion worth of capital at 3% interest. And why don't you go do an accretive acquisition? And an accretive acquisition is something growing 100 or 200% a year. By the way, what's better for Apple to buy Disney or for Apple to buy Bitcoin? Because if you buy Disney, you're buying 100 million moving parts and a lot of complexity and a lot of risk and a lot of competition. If you buy Bitcoin, your treasurer just had to go buy Bitcoin. 
there is no competition. There is no employee base, right? There is no, the moving parts have all been worked out for a decade. They're not changing. So it, it's a much better balance sheet idea than what's being laid on the table for most CFOs or most CEOs right now. So I'm going to ask this question. I'm, I'm, there's, a, there's a question here, and I think you're going to follow me. There's a great movie, Jaws. There's a scene uh, when the mayor, they're at the beach, and he's talking to Brody, and he says, if you yell barracuda on the, on the beach, you know, people look around, not a big deal. You yell shark, and you have a panic on the 4th of July. Now, here's my question. MicroStrategies, in some ways, was the barracuda. You went down this path, and you know, people looked at it, but it didn't create a, a panic or a stir. If Apple were to do exactly what you did at MicroStrategies, would that be the panic on the 4th of July? Would, that, would every single bell and whistle go off at every level of government uh, and in every boardroom? And so with that said, does that, do you think they're sort of inhibited? By, do you think they're sort of, uh, do you think they're reticent to do it based on th that premise alone? You know, uh, when I tweeted at Elon Musk, I said something and I really meant exactly what I said, right? And most people took a tongue in cheek, but I was very serious about it. I said, you want to do your shareholders a hundred billion dollar favor, convert your $20 billion balance sheet from cash to Bitcoin. And then all the, you know, the S&P 500 companies will have to follow you and it will become a trillion dollar favor to your shareholders. And what I really meant was you buy 10 billion in Bitcoin, you're going to double it. You can go borrow 10 billion in convertible debt. You're going to double it again. You're going to generate $40 billion of investment income on a $40 billion revenue company. Your stock is going to move north and then everybody's going to realize, holy crap, mm -hmm. this is safe and and. Here's what you're really doing. If you do that, uh, you're basically pointing out that the, the price discovery has disappeared from the bond market and the treasury, the treasury strategy of holding bonds should be replaced with a treasury hold strategy of holding Bitcoin. And so it just takes one mega company with conviction to do it. You know, um, you know, and, and you can. At our size, when it was 200 billion in market cap and we leaned on it with a billion to two billion, <clears throat> we, could, we could drive a certain amount. But now at a, billion, at a trillion dollars in market cap, you lean on it at about the $10 billion to $20 billion level. And you could do that now. And that's what would catapult Bitcoin to be a $5 trillion asset. And you could say, oh, this is frightening. Not really frightening. Gold is 10 trillion. Right when when Bitcoin is fifty trillion, then you will say it's a lot better than gold. I mean, how much more valuable is Google Maps than Rand McNally Maps? And how much more valuable is Apple Digital Photos than Kodak? Right? It's it's very reasonable for digital gold to be ten five x to ten x more valuable than gold. And I think that guy, it's just out there waiting for someone with conviction to do it. And here's the general logic. If you're Tesla, you know, what do you got to do to create $700 billion of market cap? You got to double your operating income, double your revenue. 
You know, it's not easy to go from $40 billion of electric cars to $80 billion of electric cars in one year or two years. It's not, how's Apple going to do that? And so the answer is you fix your balance sheet, right? You fix your balance sheet. As soon as you realize $100 billion of cash at Apple is a liability burning $20 billion in shareholder value a year. As soon as you flip that to $100 billion as an asset generating $40 billion, $20 or $40 billion in shareholder value a year, what, what is Apple's profit a year right now? I mean, you're like, the point is, don't I double their income? Like you take operating income and tack on investment income. Their investment income is nothing. Their operating income is everything. You, you cannot... And this is, this is the paradigm shift, right? Everybody thinks they're living in a hard, hard currency environment. They think Argentina is somewhere else and Venezuela and Zimbabwe is somewhere else, right? And, and that's not us. As soon mm-hmm. as you realize that the dollar is, is inflating at 15% a year, if you crank in any number north of 10% for the next four years and you flip your, your mindset. The conclusion you come to is you cannot create shareholder value or preserve shareholder value without a financial strategy that includes hard assets or strong financial assets. You might like take, take Apple and let's say that all of their sales are going to be limited to Venezuela, Argentina, and Zimbabwe. And then give me all your good strategy ideas and product right. ideas. And, and again, the answer is your strategy is a losing strategy financially until you get it through your head that you have to flip your balance sheet from a liability to an asset. And the second piece of this is you cannot sweep your cash flows as do, you know, from a strong currency into a weak currency and hold it. And so ultimately, it's a very simple, straightforward approach. Apple could certainly do it. Any company that has $10 billion of firepower can do it. I, you know, and Guy, I, I will end this thought with another tweet. It's Archimedes, 2,500 years ago. He said, if you give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum upon which to place it, I can move the world. Okay, the fulcrum is Bitcoin, a trillion dollar crypto asset that nobody on earth can screw with. That's the hard point of, of, of leverage. The lever is literally the $10 billion that Apple has on their mm-hmm. balance sheet or a billion dollar loan. If I, Apple just borrowed, didn't they borrow like $30 billion at a blended cost of capital, like two and a half percent or? May, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It makes you really wonder what, yeah, yes. So, so I'm going to say this, and, and I've written about this. I say it all the time. Every fiat currency in the history of mankind since the Roman Empire has ended in disaster. And you just mentioned Zimbabwe and Argentina and Michael Burry's writing about the similarities between what's going on here today and sort of the Weimar Republic. There are a lot of scary things out there, but There'll be people that have watched this for the last 50 minutes and say, you never really asked Michael a tough question. Well, first of all, I'm not a journalist, number one. But number two, we're having a conversation. But if you want the tough question, um, my, my question is this. What's the existential risk here? Because I know that you, you think about this as well, just being the thoughtful person you are. 
what derails the story that we've spent the last 50 minutes talking about? You know, if you're intellectually honest, you have to say a black swan, an unknown unknown can never be discounted, right? Only a, only a fool would discount an unknown unknown. Um, otherwise, I, I think that uh, there isn't a, 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 an existential, there isn't a risk I see in front of me. I see a lot of FUD. I see a lot of, a lot of fear, uncertainty, doubt, and noise as the society accommodates this new asset. Uh, I, you know, I look at Bitcoin, I look at it like compressed air or electricity or hygienic water it's a, or communications lines. They're all, they're all new things. And, and in the decade, when you introduce the automobile, the airplane, the electric power, the, the, the hygienic plumbing, people push back. It's like, is it going to, you know, am I, is it going to electrocute me? Is it going to burn my house down? It's noisy. It's dirty. It's, you know, people talk about, you know, our cars polluting. Well, horses are polluting, right? The, the society is going to have to adjust for a decade and there'll be a lot of noise and pushback around that. And uh, otherwise, you know, I, I think that at a trillion dollars, this is an idea whose time has come. I, I just can't see how anything's stopping it. I think there's just going to be some colorful sparks on the periphery. I know reading about you, listening to you, interviewing you at CNBC a few weeks ago, I know that you you're sincere in your wishes to make the world a better place. And, and I want you to speak to that. I want you to speak to sailor.org and the free academy for education that you've set up as well. Cause I think people would find that really interesting, Michael. Okay. Well, I mean, guy, first of all, economically, I think that the single best way to make the world a better place is 7.8 billion people are working in currencies that are weakening the best one in the world is weakening at 15 to 20% a year, and the others are weakening faster. And so uh, an underlying, an open monetary network, Bitcoin, that could go to all 7.8 billion people and provide them with a store of value, a strong financial asset that they can carry on their mobile phone, that's going to do you know, more good to the human race than anything I can think of. Now, uh, in terms of, and that's my vocational interest, my avocational interest is I have a charity, a nonprofit foundation called the Sailor Academy. <clears throat> and, and, uh, and I don't have any heirs. So when I die, all of my assets go into this foundation. And, and the mission of this uh, foundation is make education free for everybody forever. And so my general view is, if you want to make the world a better place, right? Provide people with infinite free education so they can reach their full potential. I don't see any reason why you should have to pay large sums of money to learn calculus. I mean, Isaac Newton invented all of it 300 years ago, and it's all should be in the open, you know, public domain. I don't think people ought to have to pay any money to be a computer programmer or to learn the English language or to learn to speak or, or to think or logic. And so I, I think that We've entered a, a time frame where you can learn all these things. Uh, the Sailor Academy is sailor.org, S-A-Y-L-O-R.org, and they just upload free college courses. If you want a computer science degree or a chemistry degree or whatever, you can learn it for free online. And uh, <clears throat> I think uh, to date, we've had about 800,000 students join us. We had about 
100,000 students a quarter. Uh, you know, lately that's accelerated. Uh, I would like it to become millions and millions of students. So it's not easy to even give stuff away. So if you know of anybody that wants a free college education, send them our way. We'd be happy to help. It's all Creative Commons open source license. You can borrow, steal any of it you want. Um, I, I, I think that, uh, <clears throat> I think thinking uh, in, a, in, a, in a, a big frame guy, uh, if there's 7.8 billion people on the planet and you want to make the world a better place, all the really complicated problems we have, they require good education. Like you want people with PhDs in nuclear physics and biology and chemistry and medicine. And those are the people that are going to create faster than light travel or fusion reactors or cure cancer or, or create those levitating hovercrafts that'll get us from here to there based upon clean, renewable energy that doesn't make noise and doesn't leave a carbon footprint. I'm not doing that with my undergraduate or my, my high school education in arithmetic. So how do we create a billion PhDs? Because there's only 10 million right now. And it costs about $2 million conventionally. If you have a conventional bricks and mortar university to create a PhD, we need to make it cost zero. And if it was zero, and if I said to you, you can have infinite free education at your own speed from the smartest people on earth forever, then I'm not thinking that everybody on the planet wants to get a PhD, but I'm thinking that we're gonna move from 10 million toward the billion. And that's good for the human race. And so it seems to me like uh, there's a lot of other debates about how to spend your time and your energy. Uh, I come down on, on the side of saying, fix the money, give everybody a strong store of value so they can hold all of their financial assets in the palm of their hand and not lose it forever. And then let's give people infinite education as much as they can consume at no cost and I think that those two things will make humanity better, better place for all of us. Well, so I guess I should rethink my, my visions of owning a 1967 GTO then on the back of that. But listen, Michael, when we first, when I reached out to you, I said a half hour, we've gone an hour. I want to be extraordinarily respectful of your time. But I, I'll say this, I've been with CNBC the better part of 16 years. I've gotten to speak to a lot of very interesting people. You're right at the top of that list. You're a visionary and, and I'm really hopeful that the audience took something from this because I know it did. So on behalf of Context 365, Michael Saylor, thank you so much for joining us. Guy, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at OnTheTapePod and we'll see you later this week. Mm -hmm.